The talk tonight is called A Rustless Heart. There's rust, (laughs) and then there's um, cleansing the heart. Um, We are born into kind of this range of paradox that I think is so difficult for our little mind uh, to come to grips with. So we're born into um, this kind of, these words like samsara, uh, peace, or nibbana, um, vulnerability, liberation, joy, sorrow, wholeness, brokenness, ordinary, extraordinary. You know, how do we relate to that? this range of human experience where we tend to appreciate the feeling of completion or a restless heart, uh, but we don't tend to like to open to brokenness. Or we like the idea of peace, but maybe not samsara. Um, We tend to like extraordinary. We're not so happy always about ordinary or uneventful. Uh, So the talk tonight is about um, resisting the resistance to this range of experience and coming to peace uh, with samsara, which is a restless heart. Sometimes when I go to Burma, Um, we get to go on these little trips. And um, Steve uh, had a kuti built, a little, like a sitting cottage built, pretty far away from where the monastery is, a a long hike. And one of the um, local people took Carol Wilson and I up to see his uh, kuti that, since he can't get a visa from the Burmese government, he hasn't seen yet. And who knows? Samsara. (laughs) Uh, and we had to walk through this incredibly beautiful, kind of ancient fishing village um, on the way up to the mountain, the little mountain. Um, and it was just interesting, the whole, the whole trip. It's like I was kind of, my heart was opening to this kind of old, ancient village system that can look so uh, wonderful from the outside. And then there was all these fish lying on a net, like out in a field, lots of them, lots of little fish uh, that I think they dry into make into fish paste. And there was these dogs eating (laughs) them. You know, and I was thinking, oh, is this what we're eating, you know, (laughs) for lunch? You know, I mean, it's just kind of like, I feel so grateful for the food, you know, but then, you know, there's that range of like, wow, isn't this nice? Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Look at what we're eating, you know, and, you know, just that's samsara, just gratitude, you know. Um, And on the way back, there was this incredibly joyful little boy um, following us, you know, most of the way back. And he was just singing you know, just singing to sing. And he wasn't singing for us to hear. It was just that, just that heart of, that we all have that just is so joyful. Um, and I felt, um, you know, just that joy of um, that purity of heart. And there's a, if I can find it, where I put it. There's a Calvin and Hobbes, where are you quote that talks I mean it's so cute in relationship to this but well there's tons of them I've marked obviously so there's more here so (laughs) so many okay we'll do this one doesn't it seem like everybody just shouts at each other nowadays I think it's because conflict is drama, drama is entertaining, and entertainment is marketable. Finding consensus and common ground is dull. Nobody wants to watch a civilized discussion that acknowledges ambiguity and complexity. (laughs) 
We want to see fireworks. We want the sense of solidarity and identity that comes from having our interests narrowed and exploited by like-minded zealots. (laughs) Talk show hosts, political candidates, news programs, special interest groups, they all become successful by reducing debates to the level of shouted rage. Nothing gets solved, but we're all entertained. And his stuffed animal looks kind of confused. You know, like, well, I guess you're right. You know, and then they, they go for this long walk, and he says to his stuffed animal, what a boring day this turned out to be. <laughs> do, we want, do we want just that simplicity of going for an uneventful, ordinary walk? You know, how do we relate to... How do we relate to that? So here was this, you know, little boy just singing his heart out on a very ordinary walk. Um, And I felt that just that my heart opening um, after that trip, and I got back to my own kuti at the monastery, um, and a, a rat had eaten through my luggage. You know, just... It was incredible. I've never seen anything like it. And um, I've been to Burma, you know, some time now, you know, three or four years. And this time I had brought this chocolate, uh, <laughs> a lot of chocolate that I was going to give Sayadaw Ulakana as a present, but something in me was sort of holding back. Like I wasn't just giving it to him yet. I was sort of thinking, well, maybe I'll need it halfway through the retreat. <laughs> You know, and it was so interesting. I got back, and I was actually in that space of, oh, I'll give Sayadaw his chocolate. You know, I was just in that space, and I saw my luggage. And this is heavy-duty luggage because I travel a lot, really thick steel. And the rat ate through all of it. I mean, it was just, and it was kind of like, again, like, oh. And just, you know, there's the fish, and then the dogs eating it, you know, the nice village, the, the boy singing, and then ruined luggage. You know, of course it wasn't just the rat really ruined my luggage. It was like, how do you get the luggage back home, right? I mean, how do you get your stuff back home when you're out there? So this is um, what we're born into. And often we make a lot of interpretations about ourselves in relationship to the ups and downs of experience. Um... So the talk tonight is about not being limited by samsara, not being defined by our experiences. This is peace. It's not getting rid of the ups and downs, but really having... um, It's exploring our own body and mind enough to find the space to really be free of samsara while you're in samsara. Just before teaching this retreat, I was on the vineyard with um, a number of people, 19 to 30, in this mentoring program some of us started. Um, And my family decided to have a party, big, like, family party, you know, right nearby, like, you know, not in the vineyard, but in Falmouth, in this town right where the ferry is that you can get to from the vineyard. And my family doesn't really understand my life at all. It's like some of them live an hour from here. I've been coming here since 1977, and none of them <laughs> seem to quite make the journey, um, the hour-long major pilgrimage it would take <laughs> to get here. So they often make these parties, you know, without me knowing, and, and then I'll feel like I want to go but can't, and... I was very much into this retreat. And it was very hard for me to go, but I knew that I would regret it and they wouldn't understand it if I didn't go. You know, it's like a ferry ride, right? You know, how could you not go? My nephew flew in from California. I mean, you know, my ex-brother-in-law, who I'm close to, came in from Idaho. And um, so I left um, the retreat um, and took this vehicle so that I could drive across. But... um, 
due to a lot of the ferry problems or logistics and on Memorial Day, it turned out that it was really good that I had to go. So here, you know, it seemed like it was a drag. Then it turned out it was good because it was the only reservation we could actually get to get this vehicle off the island. So it was a few days before um, the retreat was over. So I took, the, I took a vehicle over and was, drove to the party, and the idea was that I was going to drive to the parking place, you know, to take the bus back to the, you know, to the vineyard on the late ferry, the last ferry. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I sort of had it all timed in my mind and, you know, got to the party and everybody was happy and um, I knew I was going to have to leave much earlier than they would get, you know. Basically, I stayed an hour and a half and they were sort of like, you're going, you know, just, they just don't understand, you know, so, and I said, yeah, I really have to go and, but my great niece, who I'm very close to, who's five years old now, just didn't understand. I mean, she just could not appreciate that I had to go. And I'm very close to her, and it's very hard for her if I go. Um, and she loves to dance with me. You know, just, and there was music playing, and she looked at me like, you're not going to dance, you know, and I'm like, well, Brenna, you know, she didn't really get that I was going, so she has this fit, you know, just this complete, utter fit, and I'm like, okay, 10 minutes, we'll dance, you know, and then, you know, it went longer, and I'm like twirling her around, and I'm like, okay, I have to go, and, but I was late, and I had to catch this ferry, so um, I get in the car, and I pretty much think I still have it timed to the brink, but I know I'm, I think I can make it, and I get behind a drunk driver, and it was just like the impatience, you know, it was just like watching myself start to panic, because, you know, I really wanted to get back to this retreat, Um, it was an important retreat, Um, I'm behind this drunk driver, and then I went the wrong way, and, you know, it was just like incredible, because you know how you look at the clock, and the difference between getting caught in time and impatience, it was such another lesson for me about how the more impatient we are, the less time we have. Yeah? It's so interesting. And the more patient we, ha- we are, the more time we have. Well, I was losing time. <laughs> Big time. I mean, I was getting... And I kind of have conditioning to be impatient in the car anyway. That's like another whole story. Um, so I'm driving, you know, just... I'm just kind of like tightening and tightening and tightening and tightening, and then I can't find the parking lot. It's already dark by this point. I can't find the parking lot. I race into the store, you know, and I'm just kind of losing it. Um, And I finally find the parking lot. I pull in, and you know how local, my family's like this local, real local Massachusetts people. They don't exactly treat you nice, right? I mean, they kind of growl at you, you know. And I roll down my window, and he's like, and I'm like, I'm like, do I have time to catch the late ferry? No way you're going to catch the late ferry. You know, (laughs) he's like yelling at me. (laughs) You idiot, you know, and it's like. So I drive down, and it's Memorial Day, right? A Saturday night. Um, There's no parking places. But he told me there was one, and I have this big truck, you know, a really big truck, and I finally found this place, like, it was like up against a tree in a bank to put this little thing in. And it was, again, one of the... It was felt insurmountable. Again, I was just like, oh, I can't do this. You know, I'm already late. You know, it's dark. You know, no one's around. And suddenly, this old man in a golf little golf cart comes along. And I jump out of the car, and I'm like, please, I beg you, will you park the car for me? <laughs> and he's like, no, I'm not allowed to do that. And I'm like, well... You know, and he could see that I was really freaking out. So he spent a lot of time, you know, cut the wheel this way, cut the wheel that way, cut the wheel this way, cut the, you know, just over and over, you know, to get this truck into this little spot. I got it in. And then he says, you know, it's not safe for you to walk alone out here. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. You know, like, and then he insisted that I get into this little, you know, golf cart. And then on top of it, um, he's going really slow and talking with me, you know. And again, it's just like, oh, you know, it just seemed like catastrophic at this point. Um, <laughs> and so we finally get to this bus, and um, I'm the last person on, and I walk in, and the atmosphere in that bus was like they were all ready to kill me. 
I mean, really, it was like you could cut it with a knife. You know, and it's, again, the local Massachusetts, I know it, it's like, (laughs) you know. So I didn't know they were waiting for me, right? On top of it, every single person in this bus was not allowed to park in that parking lot. It was full. And they had to go miles and miles further down the road. And I thought, all this time, I thought that, you know, it was just a, a catastrophe and that I was late. And in fact, I was the only person allowed to park in that parking lot that night. You know, so it, life is so strange, isn't it? It's like you think it's not going your way. The whole thing, if I hadn't been behind the drunk driver, I would have never been allowed to park in that parking lot. And so that whole feeling of like, oh no, my niece is getting upset, you know, I'm not going to make it behind the drunk driver, you know, the, even down to the, the man helping me, it's like everything was actually going my way. And it totally seemed that it wasn't. And then the, the bus driver, just as an anecdote, drove like 60 miles an hour <laughs> to the ferry and everybody's terrified on the bus. <laughs> Uh, But we made it, you know, and it was just like, here you go. Again, it's just that feeling. There's this great old, you know, Native American saying, um, sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the while great winds are carrying me across the sky. And you know how we can just get caught in that feeling of, it's not working, you know, it feels insurmountable, it's not going my way. And then from a bigger perspective, we start to see that we're being protected. Acceptance of joy and sorrow, pleasant and unpleasant. There's a um, teacher, Srinivasa Maharaj, that lived in India. Um, who is not alive now, but um, wrote a book called I Am That. And he's he just, just the most amazing dhamma just flowed out of him. He was um, incredible. And he said that it's really facing the unpleasant that liberates us. You know, it's actually when things aren't going our way that we learn a lot about liberation. It's not when pleasant things are happening to us that things really um, open for us. And that's, it's not that we avoid pleasure, you know, and, not, and we do seek out pleasure to, to soften and open, but it's also to remember that it's very difficult culturally to value pain. You know, and that, that's a lot of what we learn in a, a Vipassana retreat is to at least equally start to value the appearance of pleasure and pain and to see the beauty of it for um, the purification of our own heart. So in a retreat, we learn that it's okay to be lonely, okay to be sad, okay to be sleepy, okay to be restless, okay to be irritated, hopeless. We're really... Um, facing the suffering to end suffering. I was on a um, plane about a year after 9-11 happened, uh, and this man that sat next to me seemed very agitated, um, quite restless, um, and he started talking with me. And he had been hired to work very high up in the um, Homeland Security Department in Washington, D.C., like very high up in terms of um, responsibility. And I said to him, you know, you just look so (laughs) so stressed out. And I don't usually say that. And he said, you know, I am at the point where when I go to a cocktail party, if somebody asks me how I am, I have to run into the bathroom and I just start sobbing. You know, just just the, just the load he's carrying, you know. And again, I don't usually talk about what I do or, you know, and I said, you know, I really think you need some help. You know, it's just like, how can you, how can you really value the pain that you're going through in the world that you're in? 
You know, it's just like we forget sometimes uh, the life that we often lead if we even get to a retreat. Um, there's a rarity to just the spiritual friendship that we encounter. And you know from your own life, the life that I'm talking about that he leads, that's so tough, um, so unaccepting of even his tears. And you can just see, like, it could be that he lived a life where just doing something so um, that he's trying to help so much uh, that it could be a life where he starts really opening and really understanding a lot about suffering and the end of suffering. But I can just see that for him, probably not. So the second foundation of mindfulness, facing um, the stream of unpredictable appearance of pleasure, pain, neutrality um, that we talked about this morning. Uh, What happens for us is that at a certain point, and you'll notice this in your practice, there'll be enough mindfulness and energy, concentration, equanimity to go with the, the flow of your experience for a bit. You know, you might notice a sound, a thought, a body sensation, and you'll feel like you're going with the flow of life as it is. And try not to underestimate your ability to do that, even if it's for a few seconds. If you can do that, the heart is pure, and you're allowing yourself to be touched very deeply by the universe. We're touching the truth of things. We're touching reality. And we're facing how things are with momentary concentration. Again, we're going with moment-by-moment change. But what's hard for us to grasp is that that moment-to-moment change is so arbitrary in terms of pleasure, unpleasant, neutral. Um, It's way, way, way beyond our control. And it's karmically determined, really. So at some point, if something unpleasant happens and we're not able to be with it, we'll react with fear or aversion or irritation or grumpiness. That's um, the appearance of a separate self. And it's not that we have to get rid of that reaction. It's that we learn the skill. We keep learning the skill of how to work with that reaction. So in this practice, at this point in the retreat, it's usually getting more intense. One of the things we don't bargain for when we you know, sign up for an intensive retreat, you know, we see intensive, but we don't really... <laughs> you know, it's like, it just doesn't go in. Like, what does intensive mean? Well, you're getting a taste of it at this point in the retreat. It's like you've gone through all the aches and pains of getting here in the present, and then as you start deepening, you're meant to see the opposite of peace. You're starting to see how we react to pain with pushing it away or fear and how we react to pleasure passing with holding on. And it's not to judge it. It's much more to explore it. And as the more equanimity we get, the more mindfulness we get, actually the more we start to be able to face it and face the deeper roots of it. So if you've practiced a long time, Usually people will come in for an interview and say something like, I'm still working with blah, blah, blah. You know, or if you maybe haven't done retreats, but you've been around long enough to go, I'm still whatever. You know, It's just that word still is a sign that that's what we're learning this lifetime to work with in terms of resistance. What, what sticks around a long time is our greatest teacher for resistance. Resistance is the feeling that you don't want to be with something. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be with this. Um, we know it. We must. You must know it pretty well by this point. And we tend to think that somehow we have to get back to what's underneath it or what came before it 
rather than just settle back and go, oh, it's, it's okay. I don't want to be with that. That's what's happening in the present moment. And sometimes if we can get enough care and compassion for that, if we realize that that's what's really the truth of the moment, you don't have to do anything with it. You don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to get through it. You don't have to fix yourself. You don't have to feel like, okay, liberation's going to happen 20 years when I can finally do this. It's much more the liberation happens in the moment of being with the resistance. That's liberation, is, a, is a accepting that and not being limited by it. The awareness is free then. It just comes and goes by itself. There's no problem. The more that we connect with samsara, meaning the more we connect with this change that's happening moment by moment, the more that we face hurt and loss. And we know the difference between being indifferent, not really caring, um, and denial and passivity. This mindfulness isn't passivity. It's really connecting and then facing the change, which means that there's this loss over and over. And so the restless heart, a restless heart is a heart that just can keep flowing with the change and even the resistance to the change. We start rusting up when we start really getting caught in our reactions and believing our reactions and not getting any space with our reactions, even wanting to get rid of the reactions versus just allowing them. So any moment we can access this infusion of peace, you know, it doesn't matter what the experience is, we don't, um, we don't have to uh, force, but it requires this very compassionate gentleness. I think that I find that resistance can be so slippery that sometimes I don't even know it's there. You know, and, and I would encourage you to, again, reflect on resistance because resistance is liberating. It's not a problem, but it's hard to see it sometimes. Um, there was a retreat that I just did at the end of March, a self-retreat, and I was feeling like something was going on, like this, I sort of thought it was resistance, but I couldn't see it. That's how slippery it was. And finally, after an hour or two, I heard this little voice say, I can't take this anymore. It was so, it was such a little voice, and yet look how strong that resistance was. But it was like this little, little teeny whispering bit of words. Um, And I was like, oh, aversion. Oh, yeah. Ah, there's that recognition again. And once there was that space, but it took a couple hours for me to just be patient, not try to get rid of it, not have to do something with it, not to get into something else, but just to wait and then finally connect with it. When we connect with an experience and let it be, it will come and go by itself because it's the nature of life to change. You don't have to let things go. It's really over and over again, being with things as they are, which allows us to let things be. So we receive the breath, or food, or a step, or despair, and realizing that if you really receive life, if you let yourself be touched by the universe, um, it requires letting go of control. It requires being vulnerable. And it requires also facing change, letting things come and go by themselves. Um, So equanimity in this case means that there's that unconditional acceptance. And unconditional, you know, think about it. It's like it's meaning that we're not putting a condition on the acceptance. And that's what peace is, that's where we become free 
of samsara. And it's, it's really what allows us to have a spontaneous presence in life rather than a kind of more controlled, <laughs> you know, that feeling of like tightness or tautness or control versus a relaxed stillness and spontaneity. One of the descriptions of this practice is called the path of purification. Um, and again, you know, we hear intensive, but or we hear path of purification. And I know most of my life of going on retreat, usually somebody will say to me, you know, kind of like they're hinting at, you know, oh, you're going on a retreat. It's like somehow, you know, I'm being selfish. You know, they think you're going on a picnic, right? And they look at you like, you know, you're abandoning them and you're going to go off in this great, you know, yoga, you know, put your feet up, eat good food, you know. If they don't have any idea, really, they treat it like you're going on a vacation. And you come here and it's like, oh, you know, it isn't a vacation. It's certainly a vacation from the normal, you know, a more mundane bombardment. And there is a joy in that. You know, there's a joy in getting taken care of. There's a joy in being fed. You know, there's a joy in being so intimate with ourselves and nature. But there's also the layer of really facing the roots of war in ourselves. And that's really hard, as you can see. You know, it's like if you're wondering why you want to get out of here, (laughs) you know, it's because it's also (laughs) the path of purification is purifying. And so what that means is that in terms of a restless heart, that when you have some moments of mindfulness, concentration, and equanimity, that's just like taking a dirty cloth and washing it in water and soap. The dirt will come out. And so we have these times when, like I've said, like these more peak experience times where it feels like everything comes together and we feel wonderful and we make an interpretation that this is good practice and that I'm a good yogi. And I'm doing great. And you know that commentary, you know, oh, this is great. I finally got it, you know. And, oh, it's getting better. It's getting deeper. You know, and that's part of the practice. And we need those times. And that purity feels wonderful. It's great. It's the interpretation that's extra, that I am great. This is how it should be. You know, this is wonderful. Okay, we'll hear those words, but if we get caught in them, when the purification happens, which means that at a certain point, the energy will start to go down, and you'll feel it. You'll feel yourself losing it, you know, and you can feel yourself holding on to that good practice. And just as the energy goes down, This is a bad joke, by the way. You can't control this. Just as the energy goes down, a layer of unseen aversion or attachment will start to come up. This is how it goes. We didn't design it. You know, we put a disclaimer on this. You know, it's like we did not design, you know, the human world, but this is how the spiritual practice goes. The energy starts to go down. You start feeling yourself losing it, and at the same time, you're going to get clobbered by aversion or attachment. And at at the time when you have the least resources to deal with it, this is how it goes. And we do resist because we hate it. We think, oh, no. You start feeling like you're a bad yogi, and you're getting lost and identified. Yeah? And it's like it's so painful when, you, when you're identified with it, and it takes time to learn that this is part of it. The purification is equally valuable, if not, you know, it's really important that we get to see these layers of ourself facing the deeper roots of aversion and attachment. And when we feel like I'm a bad yogi, the practice is going terrible, It's, again, because we're not understanding that this purification is important until full enlightenment. This is how it goes. Full enlightenment is when we have no more desire for existence, no more desire for non-existence. 
and that it's so pure, and that takes some patience, you know. <laughs> it takes that being really protected by mindfulness enough to not get seduced and get seduced. Um, so we tend to want to believe that the spiritual path is this transcendent up-and-out thing where we face less and less pain, where we face less and less aversion and attachment. And in fact, it's the opposite. It's like as we get strong and we start facing the surface layers of things, you start getting strong enough to face the deeper the deeper fears, the deeper uh, aversions, the deeper greed, desires. And again, this is, this is something to um, celebrate, just to feel so joyous, to love the practice, to love the truth, and to love the practice so much that we're willing to face the heart. You know, it's incredible what we're doing here. Do we realize what we're doing here? Unconditional acceptance means that we relate to each moment equally. And there's a feeling of transparency, meaning that the opposite of transparency is resistance. And we'll feel that there's no need to resist anything whatsoever when there's that feeling of including everything as worthy of our attention. Everything is worthy of our attention because we can get liberated through it and because it appears. This is a um, poem from a book called Mirror for the Moon by Saikyo. He's an old Japanese um, poet. Making my way through the whirling rapids of Miyataki River, I have, sent, I have the sense of being washed clean to the base of my heart. Hoped for, looked for guests just never made it to my mountain hut. The now congenial loneliness I'd hate to live without. Loneliness became his companion. And I think I love this one most of all. All so vague. In autumn, the reasons why all fall away, and there's just this inexplicable sadness. you know that inexplicable sadness that can come up on retreat and there's no storyline to it. And you wonder what, what's going on in the heart. And I think it's really just the ache of samsara itself. It's like the ache of being born into this world of joy and sorrow. And if the heart is open, sometimes it just aches. It just will feel sad sometimes at this, this change that's happening. And when we, when we have the opportunity, the, this wonderful opportunity at times to face the more difficult um, emotions that can come up, whether it's loneliness or fear or anger, um, longing, you know, even the longing for freedom can be so difficult to work with. Um, it's over and over remembering um, that there's no need to change them, that we don't have to get rid of them, that the intention is that we can learn to understand them and care about them. So that shift to the intention to care and, und- and to understand means, again, that we, we see that we're not trying to get rid of emotion to be liberated. And we really have to ask ourselves, what is freedom? Because if freedom is getting rid of back pain, 
then even the Buddha wasn't free. You know, the Buddha had a back pain in his later life until he died. And I find that a source of great comfort. Really, think about it. It's like just to know that there's a special Pali word that I don't remember for that, but it's the kind of karma. There's some karmas that stick with us for our whole life. And when my back went out pretty badly in 79, you know, I just kept having the sense that you know, when this back pain goes away, then I can practice. You know, or when this back pain, you know, will get rid of then, I can be liberated. And the back pain has been a total litmus test for me in terms of my mind being free or not. Because anything that comes back and you have aversion to it, is that freedom? You know, so we, again, it's, it's very human to have the attitude, well, I got rid of that loneliness. You know, but what if it comes back? And that question is, was really liberating for me, you know, with anything that appeared, whether it started with back pain, but then there were the di- di- difficult emotions. And of course we all have, a, we can have a different story you know, five years from now, you might have a very different story with loneliness than you do at the present. But that's where the practice is so interesting because, yeah, we could be really irritated about something now that we wouldn't have been irritated with five years ago. But that that doesn't matter. What matters is that we have this ability to go, oh, it's just, or simply, it's simply irritation. I know how to work with that. Do you see the difference? It's like, oh, fine. It's just irritation. Versus, oh no, I thought I got rid of that in therapy ten years ago. <laughs> you know, that's what's so interesting. It's like we're, we're learning to be human on all levels. And so there's no need to take these emotions personally and to think that there's anything we have to do with them except for learning how to experience them. With, with a care and with wisdom. My um, five-year-old great-niece didn't meet me till she was three, and her brother, she was three and he was seven, and my niece picked me up at the airport and... Um, the kids were in the back seat, and we were driving along, and I was hanging out with them. And um, my niece, my great niece, looked at me at some point very confused, and she said, Are you a kid? <laughs> <laughs> and I said to my niece, Tracy, Don't answer that. <laughs> and, and so she looked, ag- she looked confused again. My niece didn't say anything, and she said to her mom, Mom, is she one of you or is she one of us? <laughs> and so she has this thing with me, how old are you? you know, and when she was three, I said three. And she, she really accepted it because I am sort of like three. You know, like it wasn't hard. It's not a jump, you know. <laughs> it's kind of where I decided I didn't really want to join the adult world around three, you know, so my heart kind of hangs out there. Um, so when she became four, she said, she just loves this. She said, how old are you? And I'm like, four. And she just gets thrilled. You know, she loves that I'm four. And then (laughs) she's growing up. She turned five this year, and you can feel that adult awareness starting to come in. And she looked at me, and she's like, she's starting to get it, right? You know? And she said, how old are you? And I said, five. And she said, well, how old are you when you're not five? (laughs) Mm, You know, her sense of time is starting to come in, yeah? Timelessness versus time, and the relative level versus that deeper absolute level. And I see her starting to join that adult world and struggle with it uh, and how she suffers in relationship to it. And one day, it was pouring rain, and when I go to her house, I try to leave most of my stuff in the car. 
Um, and she loves to go out to the car and get things with me. But it was pouring rain, and her parents are actually quite strict. And so we're standing at the doorway, and I'm about to run out, which I'm sort of just wild, you know, bare feet, no raincoat. I'm about to run out. And she's, like, about to go with me. Um, and her parents say, no, you can't go. And she looks at me, you know, and they're in the other room, and she looks at me, and she, she's just so good. She's like, who cares? <laughs> it looks equanimous, right? You know, it looks unconditionally accepting, but it's really not exactly connecting, you know, with the whole thing, right? You know, so I said, well, Brenna, I don't care. And obviously you don't care, but there's two people in the other room who seem like they care, you know. (laughs) And her eyes just look like so sad and pleading, you know. And there are times when I'll see that she really is so great at manipulating and looking like she's economist. And she's convinced she is, and she isn't. But other times there'll be just these great places where she'll look at me and she'll say, who cares? And it's really free. It's just like it's totally true. She's connected, and, you know, it's true. Who cares? And all of us have to work with that in our heart. It's like that difference between being connected and having that sense of healthy detachment and freedom and being indifferent, not really being in touch with the whole thing. In terms of working with anything like that, whether it's indifference, I'll give an example here of anger. But if, say, anger appears, if we've never learned to experience anger, we'll tend to deny it at first, repress it, or we'll act it out. And either way doesn't work well, right? We, we, we repress it, eventually we'll get sick, you know. <laughs> or if we act it out and we yell and scream or, or uh, attack, We don't get what we want. So if we look at anger and what it is, it's information. It's information through the body and mind. And if we detach too quickly, then we'll repress it. If we connect to it and we just connect to the story of it, you know know that experience. I love exploring anger because if you just pay attention to the thought process it's just like being in court you know and you know it's it's just great it's like this with wanting too whether it's aversion or wanting but you know it's say it's anger it's like you just get you just make your case and you get writer and writer and you know look how long you can sit here getting writer and writer and writer and you've got proof you know but have you really really received the anger and let it come and go by itself and learned, is there something I need to do that would be skillful, that we learn from it and do something skillful, or not? And it's the same thing with greed. It's like we'll make a case for what we need, right, and what we want, and we'll go go more and more into it. And it's just like court, again, where we just convince ourselves we need this thing, but do we really need it? And this ability to be able to go, oh, again, it's that recognition, and then see if we can feel the experience in our body. Because if it's just something in the head, we're going to tend to either indulge it and not really see it clearly, or if we detach from it too quickly, we'll repress it. And none of that is really learning how to work with emotion skillfully. So getting righter and righter is endless. You know, it's becoming more and more righteous. Whereas taking responsibility for the experience is really seeing that there's no one who is getting angry. There's no one behind it. You start feeling tightness or burning or pressure in the body. And you start seeing that this whole experience can be open to, explored. It'll come and go by itself. And there's such a feeling of joy when we get a sense of how to do that. There's such a feeling of joy when we get to see that we don't have to be a victim of our own mind. 
that we don't get oppressed by it. And that's another definition of freedom, when we start being able to have a choice about how to listen to what's arising, whether it's thoughts or body sensations, emotions, sounds, that we get the skill, freedom, to really explore this, not on an intellectual level, but really dropping into the experience and saying, well, what is anger? Free from any past idea about it. And that's very pure. It's pure when we get that freedom to explore and see that it's just like a sound of a bird. If you can make space for this beautiful sound of a bird arising and passing, you can make space for the experience of a terror rising and passing, or irritability, or boredom. You can get really liberated, fully liberated, watching the experience of boredom come and go by itself. I mean, isn't it just remarkable that we don't have to get rid of any of this human stuff, that we actually get free through going through these experiences with mindfulness and equanimity? And when you learn to do that with one thing, like when you learn to really be able to let a sound come and go by itself, or when you learn to let the breath come and go by itself, please don't underestimate that. If you're practicing with that, that's really important because it's the strength that you start to learn by doing that. For me, really and truly, being able to listen to the sound of a bird and that it was pleasant, I had to learn it with a pleasant sound. To really connect my attention with the sound, to be with a vibration of hearing, to really let the universe touch me that deeply, to let it come and go by itself, That was my doorway, that was my entryway into being able to do that with a breath. And then when I could do that with a bit with a breath, I could do it with back pain sometimes. Please don't expect yourself to do this all the time. There'll be times when you just need to close up, be here lightly, or even resist. And eventually we learn how to apply the mindfulness and equanimity to the places that we have the most difficulty with. You know, and that takes patience. When patience is there, you're going to feel like you have all the time in the world to do this. And it's true. You have all the time in the world. When impatience is there, you're going to feel like it's impossible because you're going to want to do it all now. You know, and it becomes this insurmountable hill. You know, so see if you can start to get that sense that the patience is really this ability to just settle back. It's really settling back into the present. And when we settle back, what's so funny or ironic is when we settle back to the present, we really get everything. We're given all of time in that ability to just settle back into the moment of now. And when we feel like we have to do it all at once, we'll start getting less and less time, and it'll get harder and harder. And just to add in that um, when you feel like, you know, you try everything and nothing's working, (laughs) you know, when, when you feel like, well, I tried this and the teacher said and this, and I'm still getting lost, and it's frustrating... Try to go easy and to know that it's okay to be lost. It's okay to be confused. It's like we do that. You know, we, it's just, that's just also part of the human thing. And by going easy, I mean sometimes it just takes a lightness, a real ease of just time out. You know, just go get a cup of tea, take it easy, you know, whatever you need to do, go for a walk. But it's often something where you bring some lightness and pleasure in. You know, don't necessarily go hang out with the mosquitoes. I mean, you know, that tends to be a little irritating, right? Well, if you're having a hard time, just sitting outside being eaten by mosquitoes is probably not going to help, you know? I mean, do something where you get a little spaciousness, 
you know, where you just really literally go for a walk or put repellent on and go hang out at the beaver pond or sit looking out the window with a cup of tea. So a lot of the practices are also learning to have the courage to back off, which doesn't mean that you're giving up, but to just, it's like putting the clutch in in a car. You know, it's just like, okay, it's okay to be lost. It's okay to get confused. It's okay to just take a time out. And if you trust that process, it's really learning how to not take being lost or confused personally. And it's really stepping back and letting that experience of feeling lost come and go by itself. And I feel like that takes the most courage for us as humans, you know, to really just get that it's okay. Sometimes we're seeing clearly, and sometimes we get lost. And getting attached to clarity you know, can be um, one of the biggest spiritual obstacles that we face on the journey. You know, it's, we don't have to be attached to clarity. We can let clarity and being lost come and go just as they are. They're not personal. So I'd like to end with a poem. And I just wanted to remind you that when you come through a retreat in terms of purity, purification, you know, you really are um, kind of like wire brushing the rust on the heart. And it, it takes patience, and sometimes, sometimes it hurts, and sometimes it doesn't. But really, um, we have no idea, really, how amazing this process is. You know, it's just, it's... Um, beyond our understanding. It's ultimately very mysterious, this process of purification. Um, And it it really just sometimes just kind of looking around and seeing us all here, all of us humans that are willing to face ourselves in this way, you know, it's just mind-boggling how wonderful it is to just sit as humans with each other and have the intention not to hurt each other and have the intention to really be touched deeply by the universe, and to learn and to grow together. You know, it's really totally beautiful. So this is a poem called The Breathing Place. And it's um, by a man that has a bookstore in Cambridge called Robert Smith. The breathing place, it must be built by following, following your instinct as a seal finds its breathing hole in ice by letting yourself go into the moments that pull like a magnet to north. You listen quietly until you know the moment, its song, why it pulls a place in you, and like the seal, you may find an Eskimo spear poised to strike as you listen. Then you visit your breathing place where some moments come, are lived quickly, and go. Others visit for years and are still not over. You must visit daily so the path remains visible as the doubt of others your own doubts, try to entice you to be their breathing place, try to make you forget the place you have struggled to find. Let's sit for a minute.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.